Good morning. See you survived the 4th of July. All right, don't see too many bandages out there. I uh, think it's remarkable. I, uh, this is one of the first 4th of Julys. I haven't added a new scar. My uh, youngest daughter is one who is very quick and quick to get to the point. Last night we were with some friends uh, lighting things on fire. and the, uh, It was one of our uh, fireworks that fell over, and I was doing my best to stand it up, and my daughter turns to everybody else who was standing there and say, gee, I have a dumb dad. <laughs> Got right to the heart of it immediately. So this morning we are going to be uh, looking at a uh, person who is mentioned by every writer of the New Testament except for Jude. He is uh, um, a man in the Old Testament. The reason he's mentioned so often is that his life is just so full of lessons of faith and of, of grace and of salvation by grace through faith. Uh, whenever you talk about faith, his name just automatically comes up. Obviously, we're talking about Abraham. When you look at somebody's life, if you're looking at a true picture, you'll see a, a complex and mixed pattern. You'll see joy and sorrow. You'll see uh, faith and selfishness, courage, cowardice. And that's what any of our lives would look like. That's what Abraham's life looks like. But in the midst of all this complexity, sometimes it gets hard to sort out what the lessons are. They, they get obscured by the, um, the, the muddy everyday realities of our, our strengths and weaknesses and all the things we go through. But there come into each of our lives uh, times of testing, defining moments. What I'd like to do is take a look at the greatest tests that Abraham ever went through. Because I think during those tests, sometimes the lessons get very clear. And by looking at this Trial, this hard time Abraham went through, I think we might see one of the greatest uh, profound lessons of life. So turn with me to Genesis 22. I'm just going to read a couple of verses to get us started, and then we'll talk more about Abraham's life. Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So God shows up to Abraham and drops this bombshell in his lap. And you think you've had some tests. How would you have liked to have faced this one? God says, take your son out and kill him. It's because I say so. Now, this is virtually impossible for us to imagine living on this side of the New Testament and all the revelation of God and what God has said and what God has, has uh, already demonstrated to be His character and His will. It's impossible for us to imagine. It's just absurd. It, it, it's, it's too outlandish. But before you write this whole thing off as nuts, and before we look at Abraham's response, let's back up and see the context for this request. Let's take a look at Abraham's whole life. Don't turn here. I'll take you through fairly quickly. Um, but Abraham's story starts all the way back in chapter 11. Chapter 11, we have the, uh, uh, his ancestry described for us. Abraham is a descendant of Noah through Shem. Now, Shem 
from the name Shem is where we get the term Semite. The descendants of Abraham are Semites. Somebody who is prejudiced against the descendants of Abraham is an anti-Semite. That's where we get that term, a Shemite, a Semite, someone who's a descendant of Shem through Abraham. And then we get several other of the, uh, his ancestors with difficult names to pronounce and impossible to remember. Till we come to Eber, the father of Peleg. And there are many who think that this is where we get the term Hebrew, Eberu, a descendant of Eber. Now the other alternative where Hebrew comes from, some think that it comes from the term Habiru, which comes from a verb which means to travel. Habiru uh, referred to a donkey driver, a uh, caravaner, which is exactly what Abraham was. He was a caravaner. He ran a string of donkeys. He uh, was what we would say uh, the owner of a large trucking company. That's how he made his living. But anyway, wherever the word Hebrew comes from, what we have is a description of his ancestry from Noah through Shem through Eber, all the way down through Terah, who was Abraham's father, to Abraham. Abraham grew up in his father's house in Ur, about 2000 B.C. Now, that's a real easy number to remember, 2000 B.C. In fact, it's one of, for me, it's one of the benchmark numbers I use to organize my remembering all of the Old Testament dates. You've got... Abraham at 2,000, you've got Moses at 1,500, you have David at 1,000, you have the return of the exiles just before 500, and then you have Jesus at zero. If you take those numbers, Abraham, Moses, David, uh, the exiles, and Jesus, you can fit everything else in between them. That's the way I organize my memory of the Old Testament dates. But anyway, he grew up in Ur, which at that time in history was the most powerful, influential city in the world. It was the head of the uh, re-emerging Sumerian culture down in Mesopotamia, what is now Iraq. In fact, Ur is exactly where Desert Storm took place, just about 30 miles northwest of Basra. It's right on the Euphrates River. Well, that's where Abraham grew up in a large city, with his two brothers, Nahor and Haran, in a fairly wealthy merchant family. Now, the city of Ur, the people of that city, including Terah, worshipped a variety of gods, but primarily the moon god. But somehow there seemed to be an awareness of the true god. We don't know much about how God preserved the knowledge of himself during this time. I think it's safe to assume that he always had pockets of people who worshipped the god of Noah, who worshipped the true god. In fact, we run into a guy later by the name of Melchizedek, who is the high priest, the priest of God, and worshiped the same God that we worship. And he just shows up and disappears. We don't know much about him. God always has his people. God always has a remnant of people who worship him. Anyway, for some reason, known only to God, he decided to visit Abraham there in Ur. We're not told what he said. We just know that God visited him there. A short time later, his brother Haran died, and Terah, his father, just packed up the whole business, packed up all their stuff, and they moved up to what is now uh, southern Turkey, northern Syria, just above the border of northern Syria, right at the top of the Fertile Crescent. You know, maybe this was a more central place to run their caravan business, um, but whatever the reason, they settled there. Abraham was an adult by this time. He was already married to his breathtakingly beautiful wife, Sarai. Now, she also happened to be his half-sister, 
the daughter of his father by a different mother, but that kind of thing was not frowned on in those days. And about this same time, there was a guy by the name of Kedor Lomer, right from the area that Abraham was living, a Mesopotamian who decided it was time to conquer the world. So he set out and he laid waste to all of Palestine. He was the Attila of his day. He went through and burned and plundered and left everything desolate and impoverished. He allowed each city to keep its own government. Each city had its own king, but they all had to pay tribute to him. So as Abraham shows up on the edge of Palestine, Palestine was a very disorganized place, each city having its own king, no real cooperation, all of them paying tribute to a foreign overlord. And Egypt wasn't very significant at this time as far as the power in the area. They were coming out of a 200-year period of internal decline between the old kingdom and the middle kingdom. In fact, we're told that things had disintegrated there until the election of a new king, a guy by the name of Ross Perotet-Common, who uh, got rid of the old bureaucracy. Actually, I threw that last sentence in just to see if anybody was listening. But anyway, while Abraham's up in Haran, God visits him again. And this time we're told what he says. He says, Abraham, I want you to leave. I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your people. I want you to leave your father's house and head out. Now, this, what God was asking him to do was leave everything, everything he knew, everyone he knew. He was to leave his inheritance, to leave his future. This had to be a scary thing as, a, as an adult, to walk away from it all. Just because God said, I want you to go. Then God also made three promises to Abraham. Now, I don't think this was a deal. I don't think God was saying, if you go, I'll do this. God was just saying, Go. But then at the same time, God told him a little of his plans for him. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Well, he's leaving a great nation. He says, I'm going to make your name great. But the place to make a name for yourself was not out in the hinterlands of of Palestine. It was back in the the, the great civilizations of Ur and of of Sumer. And finally, God tells him, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless anyone who blesses you until the whole world is blessed. What God's saying is, if anybody helps you out, I'm going to help them out. I'm going to, I'm going to enrich their lives. And if anybody tries to hurt you in any way or tries to rip you off, I'm going to destroy them. This was God's promise that he would take care of Abraham. He would protect him. So Abraham heads out, took his wife, his nephew, the son of his deceased brother. His nephew's name was Lot. Take all their stuff and all of their employees and they headed south. And when they get into the middle of what's now Palestine, God visits again and he says, look around. This is what I'm going to give to your children. But Abraham said, I don't, I don't have any children. God, or Abraham keeps going. He goes down to Bethel, which is near what's now Jerusalem. Back then it was just known as Salem. He stays there for a while, then he heads down into the Negev. The Negev today is a very dry, desolate place. Back then it was, it was populated and it was, it, was, it was a fairly rich land. But while he's there, there's a famine. And so uh, he makes plans to head on into Egypt where there was still food and water. And it's there that Abraham chickened out. One of the places Abraham chickens out. Abraham doesn't have much money. He doesn't have uh, any friends to, to help him out or to protect him. He's a nobody from out in the hicks. He's uh, aware of that anybody could be taking advantage of him. 
And so he heads for Egypt worried. You know, he started out well. He took off when God said go. He trusted God enough to do that. But now, man, this is getting scary. He was imagining all the things that could go wrong. And one of the things that really worried him is he knew how beautiful his wife Sarai was. And he knew that powerful men are used to taking what they want. And he was afraid that when he went into Egypt, somebody would kill him to take his wife. So he talks her into letting him pass her off as his sister. And what a humiliation for Sarah. This guy is willing, just to save his own neck, to, to, to shame her and to put her in jeopardy. Now, where is our man of faith? Where's the guy that takes what God says at face value and believes it and acts on it? God said he would protect him. But Abraham's thinking, well, Egypt wasn't part of the plan. I never heard anything about Egypt. Maybe, maybe God hadn't counted on this. Maybe the whole thing is coming unraveled. And maybe all this God talks just in my imagination anyway. Egypt is a very rough place. This is real life. This isn't just Sunday school talk. This is the real world. So he's scared and he's trying to cover himself. And so he compromises and he betrays his wife. And sure enough, when they get to Egypt, the Pharaoh sees this knockout Sarah and he says, got to have her. And Abraham lets her go. And what a sorry situation. What a sad guy. You know, he lets her go. And in the process, he puts the whole plan at risk. Because without Sarah, there is no plan. But God's faithful. God had promised if anybody hurts Abraham, God would remove them. And even though Pharaoh didn't know that he was doing it, he wasn't doing it intentionally, God sends diseases in Pharaoh and Pharaoh's family. In the meantime, Pharaoh is giving Abraham all of this wealth, all of this, this dowry. He's giving him livestock and servants and gold and silver. And all the rich and the powerful of Egypt are giving Abraham all this stuff. He's about to become the brother-in-law of the Pharaoh. So they're trying to get in close to him. But somehow, God lets Pharaoh know what's going on and why his family's sick. And as they get sicker, Pharaoh is outraged. He goes to Abraham and says, what are you trying to do to me? Why did you lie to me? Take your wife and get out of here. He doesn't, he doesn't, he said, don't worry about the stuff. Take it. I just want you gone. Go. So Abraham takes all of these things, leaves. And we're told that Abraham was suddenly a very wealthy man in silver and gold and livestock. I think the uh, point of this story is that sin pays at least that's what it sounds like. Now here he is, he's, he's got all this stuff, he got his wife back. This is great. But that's not the lesson that Abraham takes out. Abraham realizes God's grace, that God is able to bless us even when we're blowing it. That God is going to keep his word no matter what. He can be trusted. But don't think that sin doesn't have its consequences. From this point out, you see Sarah and Abraham constantly at odds. She is, uh, she is angry with him. She complains openly and criticizes him. Obviously and understandably, she has lost her trust in this man. Their relationship has been profoundly damaged. And in fact, the whole family is falling apart. This new wealth is breeding bickering and fighting to the point where, where Abraham and his nephew realize they've got a part company. But it really does seem that Abraham has learned something now. 
He's learned that God can take care of him, that he doesn't have to try his own tricks. And so when he and Lot part ways, he says, Lot, you choose the land you want, and I'll trust my future to God. I'll take what you don't. I think he really did believe that God would take care of him. Well, Lot was no slouch. He was very quick, looked around, and he saw the beautiful irrigated lands of the Jordan Valley with modern cities and rich cultural life. And he says, I'll take that. And what he left Abraham was the, was the back country, the poor and undeveloped areas. It looked like Abraham really got ripped off. Here he is. He's the head guy. He's the boss. He should have had first choice. And he, he gives his, his nephew first choice thinking, well, he'll be thoughtful and considerate. And boy, no, he goes for it all. But the rest of the story tells us that Lot bought nothing but trouble. Ends up losing his, his family, losing his home, everything he owns, losing his own integrity. David Roper told me of one of J.I. Packer's colleagues who was denied tenure at a, a large uh, European university. When Packer tried to console him, he said, wait a minute, you don't understand. It doesn't matter. I have known God. And they haven't. See, that's the lesson here. That's the lesson that Abraham is on the verge of understanding. That if you have God and nothing else, in the end you have it all. And if you have everything, but you don't have God, in the end you've got nothing. Anyway, Abraham headed west, Lot went east, bought a house in Sodom, and like I said, bought nothing but trouble. First thing that happens is uh, the king of Sodom, along with three other, uh, the king of three other cities, decide they're tired of paying tribute to this guy, Ketelomer, we talked about. So they rebel. They say, no, we're not going to pay anymore. So Ketelomer and his partners come down from Mesopotamia, and they put these hick Palestinian kings in their place. And in the process, they take Lot captive and his family captive. So Abraham's left with a decision. He can't just turn his back on his nephew. Or can he? You know, we've already seen Abraham's willingness to compromise others to save his own skin. Besides, his nephew tried to rip him off. And on top of that, he's seriously outgunned here. He's just got his servants. This is a real army. This is a big army. This is a Mesopotamian army. These are his old countrymen. He knows what they're like. He stands to lose everything here. But Abraham does the right thing. He takes his 318 men, goes after these armies, comes up on them in the middle of the night and attacks at night, and God routs them. Now we're talking a David and Goliath story here, the little guy beating the big guy. Abraham comes back with all the loot and with his nephew, and we see that God is indeed doing what he promised he would do. All God asks of Abraham is to do the right thing, and God takes care of the rest. See, God is making Abraham's name great. His reputation is spreading like wildfire. Here this guy just beat the most powerful army of his day with a little group of men. You see the new respect, the king of Sodom comes out, and he says, keep all of the loot as a tribute. You become my new boss. You protect me. Abraham wants nothing to do with that plan. I mean, he wasn't called to become emperor of Palestine. And besides, he sees the wickedness of these cities and of these kings. And he wants no responsibility for it. No association with it. No compromising ties. He's seen what it's doing to his nephew. And he doesn't want anything to do with it. 
Instead of accepting their worship, he goes and he worships the true God. This is where we see Melchizedek again because Abraham goes to him in Salem and worships God. Again, we see that God's got his people, people who still call on his name that we don't even know about. God always has more going than we know about. So Abraham is learning lessons, really seems to be growing, but he's also starting to get scared. He's becoming afraid. I think there's a couple things going on. One is he's just made enemies of the most powerful men in the world. Sure, he beat them in the middle of the night when he snuck up on them, but what happens when they come back? The other thing, and I think the thing that was shaking him even more, is that God had all along promised to give all of this land to his descendants. And he hadn't had any children yet. And he's getting old. And he says, God, what's happening? Did I miss, miss something here? Or is this whole thing a farce? Is this whole thing a lie? And he's starting to get confused. And he's starting to be afraid. It's not coming the way it's supposed to. Chapter 15 is where we are. And what God says to him right there at the beginning of the chapter. God says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. You hear that? I am your shield and your very great reward. I am your shield was an idiomatic way of saying, I will be your king. I will be your protector. I will take care of you. And then he said, I will be, or I, excuse me, I am your very great reward. This is the heart of the life of Abraham. This is the heart of the lesson that regardless of what God promises, regardless of what wonderful things He gives, all of those things are ancillary to the real reward, the reward above all rewards, compared to with all the rest of the, 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 the rewards are meaningless and are, are, are empty, and without which nothing else matters. This is the great reward. God said, I am your very great reward. Fellowship with Him, intimacy with Him, receiving His love is life. So at a time when it wasn't all adding up, a time when He was afraid and confused, this was the answer. See, and when you face a time when it's not adding up, when God doesn't seem to be coming through, and it gets confusing and you get afraid, and you want to know what's going on. This really is the answer. He doesn't explain everything that's happening and why it's happening and how it's going to happen. He just says, listen, you've got me. And if you understand that, and if you enjoy that as you can, all these other things will diminish. And besides, I will take care of them. You can trust me. But Abraham isn't quite there yet. So he complains to God. He says, God, listen, a servant is going to inherit everything I own. I don't have any kids, so I'm going to have to leave it all to one of my servants. And God says, no, I'm going to give you a son from your own body. And then God goes ahead and he, he affirms that it is he who will do that. He chose to do that. It's his decision and he will do it, period. No bargains, no strings. And we're told there in verse 6 of chapter 15, Abraham believed God. He believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. See, people, that's all there is to it, is to accept what God says because we trust him. That's all Abraham did. He says, okay, I've seen you at work. 
I know who you are, God, so I trust you. You say it, it must be true. See, that's what we're called to do. That's what faith is. To realize that that relationship with God is the most important thing in your life. And in the context of that friendship, that relationship, you can trust Him. You can count on anything He says. You can count on Him. The story goes on. Sarah is very unhappy and impatient. She says, well, if God's going to give you a son, obviously it's not going to be by me. I'm getting old. So I'll give you one of my servants, and you can have a son by her. This plan has a certain logic, an attraction to uh, Abraham. So he goes along with it. Now, this wasn't very unusual in their society. This kind of thing was done. But I've got to think that Abraham knew better that he was back to his old ways of trying to cover his own bases, to take care of things himself, to help God out. His new wife, Hagar, uh, becomes pregnant, and Sarah resents her, and she really resents Abraham. She comes up to him and she says, this is your fault. And even though she is is self-justifying and wrong not to take her own responsibility in the thing, she's right, it is his fault. He should have trusted God. And again, his compromise, his sin, breeds chaos and disintegration in his family. His family life is in shreds. So then uh, God comes and visits Abraham again after Ishmael is born, reaffirms that he's going to give the promises through Sarah's son. And Abraham can't believe it. He laughs. He says, yeah, right. I mean, she's old. She's 90 years old now. And she's going to have a kid? Listen to what he says in chapter 17. Starting about verse 15. He says, God also said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarah. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell face down and he laughed. And he said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be be the father of twelve rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. This is the Arabic people, a great nation, a nation historically that has given us modern medicine and our university system, a great nation. Anyway, he goes on and says, But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear you by this time next year. And when he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. Then on in chapter 18, the Lord and two angels visit Abraham. They, they go into his tent, and these tents were large, skin tents, huge things <clears throat> with, uh, with dividers hanging down to separate into rooms for privacy. This is what, what Abraham lived in. He moved a lot, and we'll, we've seen already that he's moved a lot, and we'll see all the way through his story he keeps moving because he's a caravaner. That's what he does. But anyway, he has these 
three men, and he's talking to them in one of the little rooms, and right on the other side of the divider is Sarah listening in. And the Lord says to Abraham, when I come back a year from now, Sarah will have a son. And Sarah laughs in her heart. She doesn't laugh out loud, but in her heart she says, yeah, right. I'm 90 years old. I'm past menopause. This guy obviously doesn't know what he's talking about. Now, these guys are all alike. They promise so much and they deliver nothing. And the Lord speaks into the divider to Abraham, but knowing Sarah's listening, says, why did Sarah laugh? And Abraham's probably looking around saying, what's he talking about? From the other side of the divider, you hear Sarah say, I didn't laugh. And he said, yes, she did. When Isaac is born, what the, the, name, the name the Lord told to give to Isaac is one who laughs. Because both Abraham and Sarah, when they were told he would be born, they laughed. They didn't believe it. They thought, this is ridiculous. They couldn't quite handle this. They couldn't, this was too much, too far to believe. In chapter 19, we have the story of the destruction of the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Chapter 20, we have Abraham back to his old ways. You know, the old habits are hard to break. For some reason, he's moved down into the Negev. Again, he keeps moving around. And at this point, the Negev was Philistine territory. The Philistines had five major cities down there, and they organized themselves by a confederation of these cities. The leader of the confederation was always given the name Abimelech. That's a title, like Pharaoh. Uh, Abimelech means the son of God. Anyway, David, or excuse me, um, uh, Abraham is down in this territory, and he's scared again. He's still afraid that Sarah's good looks are going to get him in trouble. Now, realize Sarah must have been something to be endangering his well-being at the age of ninety. She really must have been something. But Abraham again talks her into letting him pass her off as his sister. He's still trying to save his skin, still up to his old tricks. You know, sin makes us stupid. And it makes us look foolish, especially our old sins, especially the ones that keep getting us. But before we get down on Abraham too much, I think all we have to do is think a moment about our own sins and how foolish they make us, especially those ones that get us over and over again. You know, all we learn here about Abraham is that even though he had learned so much, even though he had grown so much, he's still made of the same stuff we are. You're never home free. You're never beyond the possibility of sin. Even the lessons that we learn, as valuable as they are, they aren't in themselves any guarantee. We can all fall, even the most mature of us. And we've got to face that reality and maintain our dependence on God and our, and our connection with each other to fortify ourselves against that constant struggle, that constant temptation. But I think God was doing something special in, in allowing Abraham to fall again at this late date. I think he was reminding him of the lessons that he's already learned. I think he was preparing him for the final test. See, Isaac is born the one that they had waited for for 25 years expectantly is born. The son of promise that Abraham had ever really wanted from God, he now has. And as much as he loved his adult son Ishmael, 
He has to send him away, leaving all of his hopes for the future, hanging on Isaac, the the son of promise. Isaac uh, grows up. He uh, goes through childhood, grows through adolescence. He's a young man, probably in his late teens. And that's where God visits him. Chapter 22. Let me start reading there again. Read through the chapter. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Now, Moriah is right at Salem, what is now Jerusalem. In fact, Solomon built his temple on Mount Moriah, right in the place where Abraham offered Isaac. And today, in the old city of Jerusalem, is a Muslim holy site, the Dome of the Rock. It sits right on the very place that Abraham was to offer Isaac. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning. You know, as hard as this was for Abraham, as excruciating as it was, he saw no point in putting it off. So early the next morning, Abraham got up and he saddled his donkey and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Did you hear that? Did you hear that pronoun? We will come back to you. He's got the wrong pronoun there. He knew what he was about to do. But we're told by the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament that Abraham was fully convinced that Isaac would come back with him. He didn't know how, but he knew God had a plan up his sleeve because God had told him that it was through Isaac that his descendants would come. And now God said, kill Isaac. Before he had any children. So somehow God is going to have to work these two out. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham figured that God would bring Isaac back to life. That was the only thing he could figure out. That was the only answer he could imagine. He knew God would do something. He just didn't know what. And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And that must have been a hard conversation. And Abraham, again, knew that God would provide. He had seen God's faithfulness over and over in his life. He knew he could trust God, but he sure didn't know how or what. And his throat must have been choking with confusion and fear when his boy was asking those questions. And when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar and there arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now Isaac knows what's going on. But we don't have any suggestion that he struggled or that that he resisted at all. He sees his father's agony, but he sees his father's faith. You know, Abraham's hands must have been shaking. His tears must have been flowing. But still, verse 10, 
he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by his horns. And he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. He leaves out the verse that says that Abraham tore those ropes off his boy and pulled him off the altar and hugged him to himself. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Again, we know that ultimately the ultimate sacrifice was provided. That's where God went ahead with the sacrifice of his son out of his love for us. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nation on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. I want you to uh, consider two scenarios. One that happened, and one that could have happened. The one that happened was from here, Abraham and Isaac went home. They enjoyed a relationship of trust in each other, a relationship of integrity, worshiping God together, sharing their common uh, trust and awareness of God's greatness and God's goodness Abraham knew beyond a question that God could take care of his boy. He had nothing to fear. So he could let his son go and let his son grow up. Because he knew God was to be trusted. His God could be trusted. And his relationship with God flourished, brought him peace, wisdom, brought him security, brought him delight and health. In fact, we're told later on that... uh, uh, Abraham, in the next chapter, the last chapter of his life, went back into the middle of Palestine and bought some land to, bury, to be buried in and to have his wives buried in. Because God had told him that 400 years later, 400 years later, his descendants would occupy that spot. And, and Abraham <clears throat> was so convinced that that was true, he was buying real estate there. Because he wanted his burial when his descendants returned to be right smack in the middle of where they lived. That's like you going down to Nevada and starting to buy up real estate because you're convinced that California will drop into the ocean and you want some beachfront property. I mean, Abraham knew it was true because he knew God could be trusted. And he died a happy, healthy man. Now, the other scenario, what could have happened? Well, what could have happened as Abraham could have said, no way. This is nuts. I'm not going to kill my son. He's the most important thing in my life. He's the thing I've been waiting for all of my life. I'm not going to do it. He could have refused and gone his own way. But what kind of future would he have had? He would have had a future clinging to his son in fear, always worried about what might happen. 
A future where he was afraid of God and afraid of what God might ask of him and afraid of what God might do to him. There would have been no fellowship, no relationship there. And he would have had to cling to his son and look to his son to provide that, that intimacy, that, 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 that uh, um, encouragement to, to carry the weight of his dependence rather than God. No relationship, not with a son or a spouse or a parent or anybody, can carry the weight that the relationship with God is to carry. He is our security. He is our comfort. He is our wisdom. And and I'm sure Isaac would have resented his clinging father and pushed him away and rebelled and gone his own way. And Abraham, trying to hold on to what he thought he wanted, would have lost everything and lived a life of insecurity and emptiness. Trying to get what he thought he wanted He would have lost everything. You know, how good for him and how good for us that he trusted God enough to be willing to lose everything he thought he wanted and in the end gained it all. Now, how can this be? How can we experience this kind of faith? Well, the starting place is realizing that God can be trusted. And based on that firm belief, stepping out and obeying him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it well when he said, Only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. Only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. You see, when we obey, when we step out and do the right thing, because God calls us to do the right thing, Then we see His faithfulness. We see His wisdom. And we're overwhelmed by His goodness and His power, His ability to work all the details out. And we have that faith confirmed. We see what He's like. And it's easier to trust Him. And the more we trust Him, the more we can obey Him. It's reflexive. It's a circle. The more you obey, the more you trust. The more you trust, the more you obey. But it works the other way as well. If you refuse to obey Him, you never have a chance to see His goodness, to see His great plan. You leave in fear, and you grow in insecurity rather than in faith, and in confusion rather than in confidence. And it gets harder to trust Him the next time, harder to obey. You see, obedience flows out of faith, and it flows into greater faith. In fact, James tells us in his letter that if you don't obey... You don't believe. If you're trying to tell yourself, yeah, I trust God, yes, I believe, but you don't obey Him, you're just playing games. You're fooling yourself. Well, what will this obedience look like? It will look like a willingness to give up the gift that you hold most dear just because the giver asks you to. Maybe it will be saying no to that son or daughter at the hardest possible time, just because it's right, knowing that they may walk out the door and you may never see them again. Maybe it will mean ending an unhealthy romantic relationship, even though it feels like this is your one shot at that husband or the wife you've always dreamed of. Maybe it will mean hanging in there and loving your wife or loving your husband, even though that feels like death. Maybe it will mean refusing to look the other way when something is wrong at work, even though you know that you have just ended that career 
that you have worked all your life to develop. Maybe it will mean not ever getting that dream house. Not, maybe it will mean giving up money, time, energy to meet needs in the body or in the world. Whatever that precious gift is, whatever that dream that is dying, what we're talking about here is that faith calls you to be willing to do what God calls you to do simply because He asks you, even at the risk of losing everything. But is this just a matter of sheer obedience? Can we grit our teeth and obey like this? Most of us can't. In fact, most of us avoid ever getting close to God because we're scared to death what He might ask. So we keep our distance. We don't want to hear what He has to say. See, this is because we don't see His heart, His heart to bless and to give and to enrich. He is the giver. So we keep our distance. We uh, go to church enough to feel saved. But we just continue our sterile, shallow existence. But how long can we keep that up? And this isn't what we want. This isn't what life's about. This isn't what our hearts ache for. But how can we gain a heart that loves the giver more than the gift? In one sense, it's just a matter of logic. Ask any third grader. If you could have one wish, what would you wish for? And they'd say, I would wish for all the wishes I could ever have. You know, if God is the source of all good things, and He is, then to have Him is to have access to all good things. To have Him is to have the goose that lays the golden egg. You see, we don't live on logic. We live from the heart. So again, how do we gain a heart that draws toward God? You see, most of us, for most of us, God is outside the circle of our lives. The circle of of our interests, of our focus, of our attention, our time, our affections. God is on the outside and we ask Him for things that we need on the inside. We ask Him for things that that our heart longs for. We ask Him for people we need and people we want. We, We express the desires of our hearts and He gives to us. But it's those gifts, it's those people, it's those things that are at the center of our affections, the center of our attention, the the center of our daily experience. Rarely do we ever think of God except to ask or unless we're angry. Rarely, if ever, do we just enjoy His presence. Rarely, if ever, do we speak our love to Him. What we must do, not because we should, but because this is life. What we must do is invite Him into the center of the circle of our lives, of our attention, of our affection, of our experience. Invite Him there to love Him and to be loved by Him. And as we do, we will experience His mercy. We'll see what kind of person He really is. And we will grow to trust Him because He is the most important thing in our lives. Again, not because He should be, but because He is. And as we trust Him, we will obey Him. It will still be difficult. It will still require incredible fortitude. It will still involve more pain than you think you can bear. But as you trust Him and step out in obedience, He will prove Himself. And you will exalt in His goodness and you will love Him all the more. You will discover 
that he is indeed your very great reward. He himself is your reward. Well, let's pray. Let me just ask you to think about these things and to invite God into the center of the circle of your world, of your attentions, your experience, to be there for you to love and for you to tell Him your love, for you to just enjoy and to give Him the pleasure of your friendship. He wants to be a friend, a friend who you trust, whom He can trust. Just invite Him in there. Tell Him that you want Him more than you want anything else. And if you don't, tell Him that you want to want Him more than you want anything else. More than you want children, more than you want a house, more than you want the the ideal marriage. Tell Him that you want to want Him more than your sins, as hard as they are to give up, as hard as they are to even talk to Him about. Tell Him you want to want Him more than that. Tell Him you want to learn to love Him, to obey Him. Lord, we are so quick to forget what you've done in our own lives. We are so quick to become afraid of what you might ask. And we want to cling to the things that our hearts long for because our hearts are distracted. But right now, Lord, we want to want you more than anything. We want to be your friends. We want you to be able to trust us. And we want to live in trusting you. So, Lord, I just ask that you do that work in us that you did in Abraham. Convince us that we can trust you. Convince us that you are the very most important thing in our lives. We love you. We just ask that you teach us to love you more. Jeremiah 29, 11. God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord.